Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia. Good morning to you, good day to you, wherever you are. 
As you are listening to this radio program, this is Radio Orbit. My name is Mike Hagan, and I'm your host. Every Monday night from 11 p.m. until 2 a.m. in the morning, we do it up. So tonight, no different. You're listening to it, your imagination station. Thanks to everybody who uh, stepped up and took care of business over the last couple of weeks. We appreciate it. The station is uh, doing well and strong, and thanks to all of you. We appreciate it in general at the station, and uh, in particular, all of the uh, listeners to this show who support it and support the station. So thanks a lot, all right? All right, so it is, uh, what is it, tonight, the 6th of February. Happy birthday to my sister down there in West Palm Beach, Florida. I love you, Carol. All right, and it is also the night that we will have John Major Jenkins on the air with us. Uh, John uh, Jenkins, of course, the author of Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, among six or seven other books, but that one, of course, is Stunner. Uh, came out back in 98, I want to say it was. We'll ask, uh, clarify that with John. But anyway, that's coming up in just about 55 minutes or so at the top of the hour. We will have, uh, and for those of you who are not familiar with John Major Jenkins, we'll be talking about uh, the Mayan calendar and the significance of the year 2012, in particular the winter solstice of that year, December 21st. And... Uh, Really fascinating stuff, and John Major Jenkins, a guy that can really, uh, really expand on these topics. So we'll talk with him in just a little while. We've got um, a big thank you to uh, put out there to Dr. Paul LaViolette for the show last Monday. Remarkable, and again, fascinating and stunning material coming from Dr. LaViolette. And uh, really appreciative that he took the time out of his schedule to do the show. So thanks, Dr. Paul. As I said tonight, John Major Jenkins uh, will have music tonight by a friend of mine who goes by the name of Eskmo. That's sort of his artist name. His real name is Brendan Angelides, and he is uh, going to be on the phone with us. As a matter of fact, in a few minutes, here live from his uh, uh, his studio in Connecticut. So we'll talk to Brendan, and uh, he's got some great music lined up uh, that we'll play throughout the program tonight, so you can stick around and listen to the intuitive words of John Major Jenkins and the killer grooves of, uh, of Eskimo. All right, let's see, what else? Uh, just back from Colorado on Saturday night, and as I mentioned on the air, I had a close friend of mine who took a stroll to the other side of life, and he left this world uh, about ten days ago. His name was Tim, and he was a great friend and a good man, and I'll miss him. But it was uh, an interesting trip. Anytime something like uh, something like that happens, unexpectedly, it uh, it always rocks the apple cart, and you know a shock wave sort of moves through the circle of friends and family of the person who's died. And this time that was no different. There was this shockwave that moved out from the moment of Tim's death uh, to his mother who found him and uh, and then as the information goes out in bigger and bigger circles uh, those closest are affected the most deeply and uh, 
It goes on and on, though. I mean, even as I talk about it now, uh, the ripple and the wave continues to move out, this time into space. So, at any rate, uh, Tim, amazing dude, and I miss him, and I'm back, and it was uh, actually, you know, all these things have two sides, as Joe Pierce, my wonderful friend Joseph Chilton Pierce says, there are no one-way streets in this game. And so I also got to see a bunch of great old friends and family and spent some time in Denver that I didn't expect to spend and made the best of it. Went up to the mountains and took my little two-year-old boy up to the mountains for an afternoon. And uh, that's always a thrill and a, a joy to see it when a, when a young person is introduced to the magic of something like the mountains or the ocean. So, you know, the cycle of life rolls on. And Tim was 36 years old when he died. And, of course, that's why it was such a shock. He was perfectly good health and, uh, you know, a happy guy, not a lot of stress. And it's just a reminder that it can happen at any time. The world is capable of throwing sharp turns into your path. And, you know... God laughs at those who make plans. So live it up. Do it now. And make the most of today and tomorrow. That's the lesson, I guess, every time something like this happens. You know, it's something that we should know by now. But when it comes and gets right in your face, uh, you know, it's a lot, uh, a lot more difficult to, to ignore it. So it's a great excuse to live your life now and to push your art your imagination, your creativity, all of those things that we love to talk about on Radio Orbit, now's the time to push those things because you never know how many tomorrows you've got and you, know, and you never know how many tomorrows those who you love have. You know, the people that you do it for. You know, so do it for them. Do it for yourself. Do it for everyone. Do your art. Push it. Okay? All right, this is Mike, and you are listening to Radio Orbit. We've got uh, a wonderful show, as I said, lined up. John Major Jenkins in just a little while. The music of Eskimo throughout the program tonight. Thanks to everyone for the nice emails. Hello to all of you listening over the web. Uh, hi to Matt in Ohio. Hi to Olha. I love you. You're wonderful. Hi to everybody else. You know who you are. I appreciate all the, all the great stuff that you, that you send me, and a lot of that stuff gets incorporated in, into the show. As you all know. All right, uh, I'm going to mention it again. Podcasting now available. If you go to the website at www.mikehagan.com, you will uh, see the front page there. Click on the archives page, and you'll see a couple of links that say RSS reader and podcast and this sort of thing. If you're interested in having the most recent program show up in your uh, mailbox, essentially, uh, whenever it goes up on the web, well, then you'll be interested in uh, subscribing to the podcast and checking into uh, the new technology that Larry's got worked out on the web. And I also want people's feedback to know how it's working, if it's working, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, We're trying to make the show better, and the best way to do that is to ask the people who listen to it. So that's you guys, and I open up to you, all right? Pull no punches. Okay, thanks to Larry, uh, if I didn't mention it before. He's the guy that makes all that stuff possible. 
all right? And if uh, if you if you know, you know that the the Dr. Paul Laviolette show, it took me a while to get it up on the web. It was like four or five days before I actually had had it up on the archives. And it was because of this trip to Colorado, kind of got thrown in the middle there. But uh, it's a great um, argument for the podcast. That way you don't have to sweat it, you know. It just sort of shows up whenever uh, whenever it's there. And if I die, well, you just won't get any more of them. It'll just be like that. So, anyway, okay, so the website, one more time, www.mikehagan.com. My email address for questions or comments, concerns, ideas about programs, anything you'd like to share with me is orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, at AOL.com. The phone number's here at the station. Uh, when, we're during, uh, when we're taking a break, you're welcome to call me here in the studio. The number is 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676. Five six seven six. If you're outside the uh, five seven three area code, and uh, that's it for now. Okay, we're gonna come back in just a minute with the guy who wrote and produced this piece of music. It's called Rain three twenty. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. I'll be back in just a minute with Eskimo.
said. That was Rain 320. And this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And, uh, yeah, Rain 320 is a song that was uh, composed and produced by my friend Eskimo. At least that's his performance and recording name. His real name is Brendan Angelides. And he is a resident of the fine state of Connecticut up on the East Coast. And he's a writer, of course, obviously, and a producer, did that himself. Does uh, some work in graphic design, I think. I know he's into photography. I think he's getting into video. And he has been uh, writing and producing a lot of different kinds of music for the last six or seven years, doing all kinds of different stuff, house, breaks, techno. Going to hear a lot of his down-tempo stuff tonight. We'll be featuring Brendan's music for the rest of the program tonight. But he's with me on the air tonight and uh he is a friend actually uh that i've known um due to a, a common interest and that interestingly is the website of kent stedman over at cyberspaceorbit.com uh brendan and i began sort of conversing a few years ago uh, just about some some things that we sort of uh, came across over there but at any rate he's with me right now on the phone so let's uh say hi to uh brendan how you doing bud very good man how are you i'm great uh, pardon me. Thanks for sticking around and uh, listening some, uh, to some of your own music there and talking to us for a few minutes, sir. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks for having me, man. All right. So the first uh, the first thing people are going to want to know is where your, your name comes from. That's me, too. We've talked a lot of times over the web uh, over the last couple, three years, and I don't think I've ever asked you where uh, Eskimo came from. And for those of you out there, if, if my pronu pronunciation is not uh, clear enough, it's E-S-K-M-O. And uh, let's uh, let Brennan tell us a little bit about his history and where the name comes from. Um, essentially, like I've always been fascinated with uh, Inuit culture and stuff and right. just the way that uh, music and uh, shamanism kind of plays in such an important role um, in our daily life up there and just you know, they're basically living in a completely different set of laws that we kind of go with in our daily lives, you know. And um, I just found that to be amazing. And I kind of always associated myself with a similar kind of feel of that. And um, I forgot what year it was, but I had found an album by uh, a group of musicians called The Residents. They're out of, uh, out of the West Coast. And they wrote an album, I think it was in 78, um, maybe 77. Mm -hmm of uh, all basically sounds that mimic um, Inuit culture, and essentially with no, no words throughout the whole album except for made-up words and um, just like very simple uh, melodies and kind of primal-sounding things, and something just clicked for me. I kind of wanted to make a character out of that, Interesting. that idea. Yeah, yeah well, you've, you certainly have, and the, uh, the first time you sent me something... I don't know when it was. It was a couple of years ago or whatever. But I just sort of, I just sort of put it in my, uh, I put your website in my bookmarks and uh, downloaded your song or whatever and listened to it a couple times. And this was before I was doing radio, you know. And uh, when I started doing this a couple of years ago, the first thing I did was pulled out that old piece and I made my top of the hour bumper out of it actually. And uh, people who are familiar with the show may have heard me. Uh, say this before, but for those of you who aren't, uh, in, about, in, a, in about 34 minutes, you can. Uh, those of you who are listening can hear it for yourself. But uh, I always, I always play this little promo uh, before I bring my guest on the air uh, 
and the background music for that uh, for that spot is is a piece that you wrote. It's only it's maybe a minute a minute and a half long or something like that, but uh, but it's great. And I was sort of turned on to your stuff back then, and uh, I'm glad really glad to get a chance to play some more of it tonight. So, oh, that's awesome, man. I appreciate it. All right, so yeah, and and the uh, the the connections to the Inuit and the uh, the indigenous in general uh, is a a central focus of this program. So it's uh, it's fitting that we're going to be featuring your music tonight because we're going to be speaking with John Major Jenkins in about 35 minutes. And for those who are unfamiliar with his work, his life's work has been the study of the calendric system of the ancient Maya. And he's come up with some amazing and fascinating uh, conclusions and results to his work. So it's a it's a nice blend of, of music and, and talk tonight, I think. So anyway, all right, so what else? Uh, let's talk a little bit about the music. That one we just played was called Rain 320. I know it's something that's relatively new. You've got a whole lot of other stuff. And um, what uh, are you performing this stuff live or is it primarily studio stuff or what uh, tell us a little bit about what you do just uh with the music um primarily with the the down tempo stuff um i've been playing it out kind of sporadically uh for the past couple of years and um just recently been actually getting booked more for it because it's starting to because i have a decent number kind of under my belt that i could actually play uh you know a long set of just just the down tempo material instead of mixing it up with other stuff so right. Um, people are definitely starting to enjoy it. They really like the kind of the positive, um, just melodic aspect to it. Because the other stuff I write is much more aggressive, dance-oriented, kind of make you move around stuff. This is a bit more heartfelt, I think. Right, right, right. So I think people are kind of attracted to that, which I'm certainly glad about, definitely. Yeah, no doubt. I know you've been touring a little bit, actually. Didn't you play out on the West Coast recently? I know you do a lot of stuff in uh, in the city in New York. Yep, yep. I just um, played a couple times in um, San Fran and um, hoping to go down to uh, L.A. soon. And, yeah, definitely a bunch of stuff in, in New York around the East Coast area and stuff like that. Yep. I mean, yeah. I don't um, – it's it's kind of tough in terms of those situations. Like, uh, your ears really take a beating when you play out. So I don't overly try to get myself out too much. I certainly mm. love playing for people and stuff, but it, you really have to be careful in terms of uh, your hearing nowadays with the – the amount of sound pumping out through systems and stuff. So. Yeah, no doubt. Well, so you pick your venues, you pick your uh, you pick your spots well, you know. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, cool. Speaking of that, wh- wh- where'd you play in San Fran? It's one of my favorite towns for music. Um, the first time, um, it was, I believe it was just below uh, the center. It was out uh, more on the outskirts, um, near the water. It's basically on a beach. Um, they just uh, brought out sound and. Um, some bass cabinets and stuff and just set up tables and it was definitely a lot of fun um had like a, a little over 100 people something like that but the, the vibe of it was is awesome people are definitely uh enjoying that kind of stuff out there <laughs> no doubt all right let's give out the website address actually while we're at it and i noticed you just sort of updated your website it yep. is um uh, www.eskmo.com simple and uh yeah when did you do that you must have done just in the last week or two yeah i was i just finished it last last wednesday so i just wanted to um there was a bunch of things i had to kind of update and i figured just give it 
an overhaul, trying to make it more minimalistic and easier for people to just get around through. Yeah, it's real nice. It's simple, but it's real, not, real, real easy to manage. Yeah, thank you, man. All right, hey, look, um, uh, speaking of the website, uh, you can also get over to Brendan's website uh, through mine at MikeHagan.com. And when you go there, click on the music page, uh, the, the music tab, and it'll take you over to a page that will give you some information about um, Brendan and also a link to download a piece that uh, that he sort of uh, has done specially for that sort of thing. And you can have a piece of his music and eventually we'll have some stuff uh, recorded that you'll have available on CD or whatever. What's uh, what are your plans for recording and future uh, the future of the music? Uh, essentially, right now, um, I'm signed. I have a bunch of stuff out. Um, the breaks and the more uh, dance oriented stuff. Um, right. I don't know if you're the labels, but the down tempo stuff I'm working on getting signed. So hopefully, um, I guess just check back and hopefully something very soon will come of it because um, I'm definitely <laughs> eager to get it out yeah. right now. Yeah, no doubt. Well, we'll, we'll uh, you and I'll stay in touch for sure, and we will um, we'll keep playing the stuff here on the program. Okay. Oh, that's, that's awesome, man. I appreciate it. All right, man. Sounds good. What else? Uh, anything you want to tell us about uh, upcoming performances or uh, anything uh, special you might want to say? Um, well, even besides myself, I just wanted to say I, I appreciate what you had said before. You were saying in general just um, that people should make the most of you know their time right now and stuff. And you, I mean, you said you learn that more and more as you know you kind of go through, like you were saying, and you happen to learn through you know catalyst when when someone. You know, that's closer to you, um, you know, passes away. But right. especially with everything that's happened right now, and I think that was cool that how we met through Kent's site. Isn't it something? Essentially, yeah. that there's more out there than, you know, you, you can't just sit down and, and kind of give in. You know, you have to keep mm -hmm. on making every day, you know, give it your all because it's, I think that's absolutely very important. It's, it's glad you said that, though. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And, and, and it's apparent when we see guys like you that are pushing your art you know and you and i have talked about this and this is you know the i i sound like a broken record but art in all of its forms is the answer and it's not that the answer is not in politics the answer has never been in politics the answer is not in institutions it's never been there the answer is with the artists and so when i see guys like you that are pushing your art uh, i appreciate it and i want to do my uh, my part to support it and uh, uh, you know it's pretty much as simple as that and Kent is no different because he's a he's an he's an artist preeminence <laughs> you know absolutely so anyway okay well great stuff uh, we will continue to talk and uh, I'll be in touch soon uh, if you want to stick around for a few minutes I'm gonna play another one of your songs here I think we're gonna play answer small and uh, we'll uh, move on with the program, but uh, we'll share the website address one more time. It's www.eskmo.com and Brendan Angelides from Connecticut. It. Thank, you. Thank yeah. you very much. Hey, no problem, buddy. I appreciate you uh, uh, sticking around. It's 1230 at, uh, or 12.30 in the morning now there, so thanks a lot, and thanks uh, for the art. Thanks for the music. Absolutely. Have a good one. All right, take care of yourself, man. All right, that was Brendan Angelides, and we will hear more from him all night, starting right now. This is Answer Small. You're listening to Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan.
That was Brendan Angelides, otherwise known as Eskimo. And this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. All right, so first of all, Brendan, Eskimo, great stuff. Thanks for uh, spending some time with us. Thanks for sharing the music. And if you're out there, go over to the website, click on the music tab, and download uh, one of his pieces that he has graciously made available to us. And we will try to get him on the air again in the future, and we'll talk a little bit more about the music and instrumentation and what he uses to make the sounds that he makes and uh, sort of the technology and art behind the whole thing. So anyway, one more time, thanks to Brennan. We'll talk soon. All right, let's, let's talk real quick about upcoming guests. As I said tonight, John Major Jenkins, very excited about the show tonight. We'll be on the air with John in just about 20 minutes. Joanna Harcourt-Smith, next week, we'll be talking about her experiences at the Albert Hoffman Symposium in Basel, Switzerland. And uh, a related uh, conference that was held in Barcelona a week afterwards. And we'll also be talking about our new project together called Future Primitive. Working on the website of that right now. It's really going to be cool. Again, Larry, thanks. The following week is the 20th. I think we're going to take that week and leave it open in case something comes up or we'll just do a show and talk about news, maybe open the phone lines, whatever. And on the 27th, Neil Haig, a wonderful artist from the United Kingdom, from England, does all the artwork for David Icke's books. If you are familiar with David Icke, one of the ultra-conspiracy theorists on the planet, but uh, one who, to a certain degree at least, makes quite a bit of sense at least in my humble opinion. And we'll have, uh, well, you know, a couple things, actually. Joe Firmage. I'm very excited that Joe Firmage is going to be on the show. Not, I'm not sure exactly when. We haven't firmed, <laughs> no pun intended, up the date. But Joe Firmage will be on the program soon. If you don't know a lot about Joe, get on the web and go put his name into Google. You'll find out that he has an amazing history in the Internet business. Uh, developed and um, built a number of software companies in the late 90s as a young man, made a whole lot of money, and then changed his focus. And we're going to talk a little bit about both sides probably. But anyway, if you're interested, go check out Joe Firmage on the web. Uh, I don't have his website right in front of me at this moment, but it would be very easy to find with the search engines that we have today. And Dr. Michael Heisen, I got a call from Dr. Heisen this afternoon, and I've got a couple things I want to talk with him about. Um, so we'll have Dr. Michael Heisen, the brilliant marine biologist, neurobiologist, in Puna, Hawaii, at the Sirius Institute there. All right, let's take a quick break here, play one more song, and we'll come back, see if we can get a story or two from the news in, and then we'll continue with John Major Jenkins. And if you're interested in finding out a little bit about what we'll be talking about tonight, before we start talking about it, just hop on the web and go over to MikeHagan.com, M-I-K-E-H-A-G-A-N.com, and just scroll down a little bit and you'll see tonight's guest. And there will be some summary information and a link that goes right over to John's website, which is full of interesting and amazing information as well. All right? 
Okay, so we'll be back in just a minute, and let's listen to one more here from Esmo, Brendan Angelides, on Radio Orbit. This one is called Cross Hatches. This is Mike. We'll be back in just a minute.
All right, one more time. That was Eskimo, otherwise known as Brendan Angelides. Thanks for the music. You'll be hearing a few more from Eskimo as the night rolls along. All right, this is Mike, and you are listening to Radio Orbit. All right, there are a couple of things that I wanted to talk about in the news. Let me tell you this. Go to the news page of my website, and I'm going to try to, from memory, uh, mention a couple of... Uh, uh, a couple of important things that that, I, that I've seen in the news over the last, well, I don't know, just the last week or so, and uh, we'll try this one more time. You know, we just talked to Doc, uh, we just talked to Dr. Paul Laviolette last week, and he has quite a bit to say about things like dark energy. And if you recall that interview, you'll know that he talked a little bit about one of his books that's called Subquantum Kinetics. Uh, that has a different approach to some of the problems of modern astronomy and physics and cosmology. Well, here's a story right here in uh, from uh, a great website called Eureka Alert, and they sort of are a clearinghouse for lots of interesting scientific uh, information. But this particular story says dark energy enigma won't go away. The nature of dark energy, the mysterious force that is causing the expansion of the universe to accelerate. Uh, cosmic acceleration is the biggest mystery in all of science, says cosmologist Michael Turner of the University of Chicago. Th uh, this month at a meeting of the American Astronomical Society in Washington, D.C., the mystery deepened when Brad Schaefer of Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge reported that dark energy appears to be changing rapidly, as a matter of fact. Though his experimental method left most most cosmologists unconvinced the results stressed how little we know about dark energy and the need for different approaches and that can be said for all of science how little we know about so much but in any way, at, at any rate the, the so-called cosmological constant which was just uh, announced in 1998 at the end of 1998 if you recall uh, it is now turning out to not be so constant so another monkey wrench thrown into the priesthood of science and again they must bow toward the complexity of the universe and the littleness of our own understanding alright there's one more here that I'll read before we sort of get uh, closer to our guest who by the way if you're just joining the program is John Major Jenkins and if you'd like to get a leg up just jump on the web and go over to MikeHagan.com and scroll down. You'll see John's name and uh, a little synopsis of some of his information and a link directly over to his website, which has a tremendous amount of information. And it is, by the way, www.alignment2012.com, alignment2012.com. And as I said, you can get there from my site or you can jump directly over there. Uh, on the web. Put it in your bookmarks for sure because there's plenty of information there that takes quite a bit of time to uh, uh, to sift through and to grok, if you know what I'm saying. All right, here's one more. Uh, there's an interesting book that's just come out. It's by a guy whose name is Philip Ball, and it's called The Devil's Doctor, Paracelsus, and the World of Renaissance Magic and Science. One day in 1527, Paracelsus let it be known that he would reveal the greatest secret of medicine to the inhabitants of Basel. The esteemed doctors and academics of the university dressed in their rich robes and fur hats 
gathered to hear his words of wisdom. Secretly they hoped the roving physician and alchemist would make a fool of himself. Already they could feel the warm glow of schadenfreude. When Paracelsus appeared, he was dressed as usual, not in the costly clothes of a respected academic, but in the plain smock of an artisan stained and smeared with the residues of the chemistry laboratory. In his hands he bore the great secret, a dish which he held aloft for all the learned company to see. It contained steaming human excrement. As the outraged audience hurried away in disgust, Paracelsus's words echoed after them. If you will not hear the mysteries of putrefactive fermentation, you are unworthy of the name of physicians. He did indeed believe that the essential truth of alchemy was expressed in the axiom, decay is the beginning of all birth. Confronting his enemies with a bowl of shit carried a less esoteric but equally eloquent message. Now there's one that I'm going to add to my collection. Paracelsus and the World of Renaissance Magic and Science. It's called The Devil's Doctor. It's written by Philip Ball. And you can uh, read the whole article. It's a review of that book uh, on the web. Just go over to my website, MikeHagan.com, and click on the news section, and then you can link to the original, uh, the, the original story that's in uh, the Guardian newspaper from London. Okay? All right, what else here? Uh, cosmic rays linked to cloudy days. What did Dr. Paul tell us that cosmic rays, etc., actually have an influence on the planet here? Well, every every week now I'd see another article, you know, about uh, cosmic rays and about the significance of their uh, impact with the Earth's atmosphere and the penetration into the Earth itself and move through the Earth. I mean, we're just uh, we're just out here floating in space with waves of all types and kinds, many of which we have no uh, understanding of. We just talked about dark matter a few minutes ago, which is only supposed to be like 95% of the universe, <laughs> of which we know nothing about. So anyway, uh, cosmic rays now linked to cloudy days. A couple of scientists have put this together. Um, a Russian inventor has patented an invisibility cloak. Check this out. A professor from the Chair of Quantum and Optical Electronics of the Ulyanovsk State University in Western Russia has patented a method of making things invisible. <laughs> the Interfax News Agency reported the so-called invisibility cloak created by Oleg Gadomsky is called the method of conversion of optical radiation in the patent. Only static objects can be made invisible for the time present as during motion a radiation frequency changes but soon it will be possible to create a cap of darkness and a magic cloak of the Harry Potter variety the scientist believes oh, there you go I was at a bar the other night and I couldn't get a drink and I said to the guy that I was with I said who am I Claude Rains and he said, who's that? And I said, oh, he was the actor that played the Invisible Man in the original movie. Nobody laughed because nobody knew who Claude Rains was. But anyway, I thought it was funny. And uh, now it's real. So we got invisibility cloaks on the horizon, so to speak. All right. Well, I think it's time to get on with business, okay? Over 2,000 years ago, the early Maya formulated profound galactic cosmology. They saw that the sun, 
on the winter solstice was slowly moving toward the heart of the galaxy. Naturally enough, with their uncorrupted intelligence intact, they suspected that the world would go through a transformation when the solar and galactic planes aligned. They devised their long count calendar to target when the cosmic alignment would maximize. And that time is 2012 A.D. We are lucky that the brilliant sky watchers who devised the 2012 calendar left carved monuments for us to decode and that they have survived the decay of centuries so that we can know exactly what they prophesied and believed about 2012. Incredibly, at the early Maya site of Izapa in southern Mexico, the galactic cosmology and a profound spiritual teaching are preserved. Izapa speaks to us of the galactic alignment of 2012 as a transformative nexus in time, a still point turnabout, inviting us to reconnect with our cosmic heart and eternal source with the divine wisdom. But how can that be achieved? What is the original undiluted prophecy for 2012, divined by those ancient mystics and stargazers who invented the 2012 calendar themselves? Izapa's carved monuments provide the answers. And now, for the first time in two millennia, the secrets of the Mayan sacred science have been decoded. Now we can directly read the 2012 revelation right at its source. And in a minute, we'll be back with one of the persons who has figured out a very big chunk of this particular puzzle. His name is John Major Jenkins. He's the author of at least seven books, uh, one of which is called Maya Cosmogenesis 2012 and was a stunning book in the esoteric community and the scientific community as well. He's written a number of other books and papers and he'll be with us in 60 seconds. So stick around. John Major Jenkins will be talking about 2012 and the implications thereof. Back in a minute, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. You're listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. John Major Jenkins, he's an independent researcher, he's devoted himself and his career, his life's work to the reconstruction and understanding of the ancient Mayan cosmology and philosophy. Since uh, 1986, for 20 years now, John has been traveling around Central uh, and South America and uh, Mexico. He's been there many times. He's helped to build a school in Guatemala. He's delivered relief supplies to the Kichamaya in the highlands there. And he has written a number of books, 
uh, including Journey to the Mayan Underworld, Mirror in the Sky, and Maya Cosmogenesis 2012, a book that I read, gosh, going on eight years now ago, uh, 1998, I guess it was, and it uh, literally blew me away. And he's done a whole lot of other things, and we'll uh, let him explain some of them to us, but without further delay, let's uh, say a big welcome and thank you to John Major Jenkins. John, thanks so much for being on the program tonight. I am here. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome, absolutely, and I'm very pleased to have you as well. And I got a whole uh, boatload of questions here uh, to uh, ask for your uh, your insight in tonight. So, really looking forward to it. Where where should we start? Where are you at, John? You're actually we're talking to you from Colorado. What part What part of uh, Colorado are you in? I'm in uh, northern Colorado, not in the mountains, but uh, in the plains, about uh, ten miles out from the Front Range. Huh. Yeah, I just drove back from Colorado. Actually, I spent about 15 years there. I lived there for about 15 years and then moved out here to the Midwest, to Columbia, just a few years ago. But I was back in Colorado, as a matter of fact, just last week, and I just got back on Saturday. So. Ah. And I drove, so I probably went, went, went right by you. Yes, you probably did. Well, anyway, okay, well, look, let's, uh, for the listeners that aren't familiar with your work, Let's do a little bit of a background framework because the story is such a fascinating one that before we get into the story, let's talk a little bit about how you got there because that in and of itself must be a pretty interesting story. So maybe you can tell everyone a little bit about how you got interested in the Maya and their calendrics and uh, and, oh, then, yeah. and then eventually this astronomical stuff, all these galactic alignments and stuff that we're going to talk about. Yeah, a little bit of background first and uh, some basics on the calendar systems. Um, well, as you said, going back about 20 years, um, I became interested in the Maya. I guess I'd always been interested in Native American cultures and belief systems, and I was always an avid reader, and uh, Frank Waters was an author that I, I read um, about 20 years ago. He, he wrote that amazing book called uh, The Book of the Hopi, mm. the Hopi Indians, and their prophecies and their ceremonies and their rituals and their symbolism. And uh, it was fascinating to me uh, that uh, the Hopi were still out there in Arizona and they were a tribe that uh, was still clinging tenaciously to existence and trying to uh, retain and preserve their, their ancient beliefs. And, mm. and then, I, then I read Frank Waters' book, Mexico Mystique, and I, I've learned through the years that in talking with other people that this book by Frank Waters, which uh, came out in 1975, actually turned on a lot of people to the Mayan prophecies and because uh, he, he talked about the Maya calendar in there. And um, Well, th this book really got me thinking about taking a trip south of the border, and I was living in boulder colorado at the time mm -hmm. and uh so i made a plan and i saved up a little money and uh sketched out the itinerary and went south of the border and, and that was really an amazing transformative trip traveling around on a shoestring <laughs> uh, taking buses and trains and hitchhiking and i was gone for about four months that was back in 1986 87 and uh, made it to some of the really amazing 
archaeological sites like Palenque and Tikal and uh, these places in southern Mexico and Guatemala. And uh, But most of all, what was really intriguing to me and what I really wanted to find out uh, more about was the villages of uh, Mayan people that I'd read about. Another book I read at this time was uh, Barbara Tedlock wrote mm. a book called Time and the Highland Maya. Huh. That was really a fascinating book. Wow. Uh, pretty ethnographic, but um, what came through from that was that the Maya calendar, the 260-day sacred calendar, very ancient tradition, mm. was still surviving in the highlands uh, wow. of Guatemala. Of Guatemala, yeah. yeah. You, know, uh, you know, John, I've interviewed Barbara Tedlock. She's a friend of mine. Oh, great. Her and her husband, Dennis... Uh, who's, a, who's a genius himself, and who, who wrote the, the the preeminent work on the on the Popol Vuh? Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, yeah, they stay with me when they come through Columbia because they they travel from the university, uh, you know, in Buffalo up there. They're they're both brilliant professors at the University of uh, or at the State University of New York at Buffalo. But they spend, the, they spend the summers in Santa Fe, and so they drive through here. But at, at any rate, I'm so glad you brought up Barbara's name because I love her, and she's done great work. Well, they are really key uh, scholars, I think. Uh, I've really respected and appreciated their open-mindedness and their scholarship. It's quite an amazing thing that uh, Barbara and Dennis both were apprenticed mm. to become daykeepers. Yeah. And that happened in the mid-'70s, and... And they both went on to write amazing mm. books about the Maya. No doubt. And uh, Dennis Tedlock, in particular, uh, his translation of the Kiche Maya Popol Vuh, the hero twin creation myth, mm -hmm. that is really an amazing translation. Uh, the first edition came out in 1985. Uh, it's really amazing because Dennis had a real sensitivity to the astronomical content mm. of the mythology yes. and and the relationships between mythology and astronomy uh, that's really a key to understanding uh, the Mayan paradigm huh, amazing I, I, I fully agree I think that's wonderful well look uh, you know I always send a copy of these programs to my guests when I'm done with him but when I send this to you I'll send you a copy of that show I did with Barbara, uh, with Barbara and Dennis oh wonderful thank you so Okay, so, all right, let's get back on to JMJ. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so you, so the, the highlands of Guatemala and the fact that the Mayan people, at least these small groups, were still there and still following these old traditions and following the calendar. Right, and I had done some research and brought some books with me and, um, you know, reading about, uh, that was sort of my introduction to Mayan tradition. And after I returned from that first trip, I started doing some more research and just reading more on it. I, I sort of tended to gravitate towards the uh, academic material because it seemed to me that a, a lot of the popular literature, although it's an intriguing in its own way, um, some of it's unreliable. And I, I always had a penchant for just digging deep into the into the research and the information. Hmm. Uh, I realized pretty early on that there were quite a few unresolved questions about the Maya calendar, in particular this 2012 date. Um, I'd read that the, the Maya calendar, the long count calendar, has this long cycle of time and, and that it's 
slated to end on December 21st, 2012. Mm. And uh, I hadn't really seen that uh, date mentioned in any other books except for Frank Waters and uh, another book from another direction that I had read by that time that mentioned 2012 was The Invisible Landscape oh, yeah. by, by yeah. Dennis and Terrence McKenna. Right. came out in 75, and I'd encountered that book oh, a couple of years before that first trip. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was amazing because uh, just the way that they parsed out all that information and, and connected it, I thought that was a brilliant, and I didn't even know who these, these two brothers were, and of course Terrence later emerged, and Dennis did, in his doing, very important work in uh, pharmacology. Absolutely. Yeah, so so they emerged later on, too, as I got to know Ter Terrence a little bit better. Uh, so that was, of, of course, a book that mentioned 2012, and it just piqued my curiosity even more about what this date was about. Mm -hmm. So... Well, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, about Terence uh, as we get into the program, maybe because I know that he he wrote the foreword to uh, Cosmic Genesis 2012, and uh, the foreword alone is worth reading. <laughs> yes. So, uh, as 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 were most of his writings, of course. But uh, uh, at any rate, we'll uh, we'll definitely get into that a little bit more because I think that 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 may be something that people. Uh, are interested in because there's sort of a verification cross uh, from a from a completely different perspective uh, that happened independently, and I think that's a very very interesting part of this whole thing. Oh, it is for sure. All right, well, um, so let's continue. You're in uh, your your first trip down to Guatemala, and you see that this is going on. What are you thinking about? Well, it was a. Uh very transformative experience as, as many first trips out of the country can be opening up to another culture mm -hmm. and my target really was to get a sense for what the Maya were about as a people and um, I, I, I wasn't planning on writing books at that time my subsequent trips back to Guatemala really involved more along the lines of uh, being an independent journalist mm -hmm. I was interested in what was going on in Nicaragua with the Sandinista Revolution and I made a trip down there and I was writing journalistic essays for a newspaper in Chicago and sending them back and uh, I also did relief work as you mentioned uh, I was very interested in the situation with the Maya in the mid 80s in Guatemala was uh, pretty horrendous because there were death squads going around and stuff like that yeah, that was just an absolutely miserable time in South America and Central America in general. Yeah, and as I got, uh, as time went on and we got into the early 90s, I, I sort of uh, got more engaged with the research, and I started, uh, I wrote a paper for another magazine, and, and I just uh, got more and more intrigued with some of the unresolved questions, and it, and it led to some of my early books. Mm -hmm. I've always had an interest in uh, philosophy and uh, physics and uh, those kind of things, and so I naturally gravitated towards kind of an academic approach to these things. Uh, but I was trying to educate myself uh, so that I would be prepared to delve more deeply into the unresolved questions and find out where the fringes were. You know, you have to sort of 
immerse yourself in an interdisciplinary field of data to, to feel like you have a, a good grasp of the whole picture and then feel out the edges and where the questions aren't being answered and and, and where there's no questions being asked. You yeah. know, that that's yeah. really a key thing is to learn how to ask the right questions. I agree. Yeah, and out on the fringes, out on the edges, that's where that's where the interesting stuff lies. All right, well, what was that first book? Was that Journey to the Underworld, Journey to the Mind? Journey to the Mind Underworld, yeah. Right, and that was actually, gosh, that must be 15 or 16 years by now. Yeah, 1989. It, oh, it, it was kind of a travelogue. Um, that was, some of my early writing involved uh, stories, short stories, and graduating to a travelogue was a natural step, but it also included in it some of the preliminary research that I was doing into the Maya calendar, and I was finding some interesting things around the mathematics and the uh, sacred science philosophy inside of the, the calendar system. All right. Well, let's. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to mention your new book as well. Uh, it's called Pyramid of Fire, and I think Marty Matz actually was somebody uh, was is involved with it. Was it a co-author or was that? Uh... Marty Matz was uh, my co-author on that book. Yeah, it was. So that that's really an interesting book. Do you want me to go into it right now? Or? Well, let's let, let, let's talk about it a little bit la later. Okay. But, I, but I'm going to give the website out again so people can go uh, and take a look at all this stuff. Um, it is. Uh, www.alignment2012.com and you can also get there directly from mikehagan.com but yeah we'll get into your into your most recent stuff uh, as we get into the program but um, let's let's continue a little bit more with uh, the, the, these these first impression uh, mm -hmm. things that happen because I think they're so formative right right well yeah and another real uh, formative kind of influence on me was when I contacted Terrence McKenna in uh, 19, 1990, I think, was our first contact. And he was so gracious to respond by mail. This was before the days of Internet and so on, of course. So, you know, the old uh, tradition of correspondence and letter writing. And, uh, and so we had a little exchange going on around uh, the I Ching and uh, 2012 and the Maya and... Um, I think he sent me that piece that he wrote for Revision Magazine called Temporal Resonance. Mm. That was really an interesting piece. And uh, so more time goes by, and I'm doing, you know, at this time I wasn't really uh, researching 2012, although I was getting deeper and deeper into um, different aspects of the, the Mayan calendar with, like, the like for example the the Mayan Venus calendar mm -hmm. I had a, I wrote a book in 1992 uh called uh, Zolkin Zolkin is the yeah. word for the 260 day calendar yeah. Zolkin visionary perspectives and calendar studies and at the time I thought well this is my magnum opus yeah. you know and <laughs> and I did get it published with a little place called Borderland Science Research Foundation out in California mm. and it it focused all on the Dresden Codex, which is one of the surviving Mayan books. Right, it has right. sacred almanacs in there about Venus and Mars and, and the eclipses and so on. And So I did a real study of that and presumed to uh, reconstruct the Venus calendar and hypothetically place it in modern times and, and start it anew to 
sort of re-inaugurate the ancient Venus calendar and see how well it really did track uh, Venus phenomenon. And, of course, it does track Venus phenomenon very well. And uh, so that really was really consuming for me in the early 90s. But uh, after this sort of first first round of research culminated in uh, late 93, early 94, I turned my attention back to the 2012 thing, which had continually been sort of pulling at me. And, and then, actually, it was um, some clues that I stumbled across in... Uh, actually, it was an interview that Barbara, Ted, Barbara and Dennis Tedlock did for Parabola magazine mm, great, in early 93, magazine. yeah, mm. the Crossroads issue. Mm. And it was all about the archetype or the theme of Crossroads. Well, this is a very central concept in, in the realm of Mayan creation mythology because as, as Dennis himself points out in his translation, um, the cross, the astronomical cross, formed by the Milky Way, like the bright band of the Milky Way, mm -hmm. where it crosses over the ecliptic, right. the path of the sun, moon, and planets. It makes a cross in the sky. And, well, in Mayan iconography and symbolism, that is a very, very important... In fact, it's the, uh, it's the Mayan sacred tree. And the Mayan sacred tree, it's, uh, it's a very, very important... Um, aspect of, of what I later discovered was central to the 2012 alignment and uh, so that was a real breakthrough in a, in, a, in a key for me as well as I, I finally asked the right question around about 2012 which was well where was the 2012 calendar invented mm. you know like what nobody at that point in early 94 nobody had really asked that question or investigated it, although when you look at the academic literature, you can find the answer. And this is where Izapa comes in. Yes, yes. In fact, you know, esteemed Maya scholar Michael Coe, hmm. he had said that, uh, well, it's very clear-cut that Izapa was involved in the very important formulation and adoption of the long count calendar. And uh, that's kind of an academically cautious way of saying that, yes, <laughs> Izapa is the place right. where the long count calendar emerged. Amazing. So, yeah. all right, so the question then becomes what is so special about Izapa? But I think before we go there, maybe we better talk about these alignments to begin with and just do some sort of definitions and let people... Uh, we, we need to know what it is, you know, when we talk about a galactic alignment of this sort or another. What are we really talking about? Okay. <clears throat> and by way of introducing this aspect of the discussion, I'll cast back to the <clears throat> amazing book called Hamlet's Mill. Oh, wonderful. That book. also was influential uh, for Terence McKenna. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this book came out in 1969. Giorgio de Santillana and his partner, Hertha von Dechen, they wrote this book. And basically the thesis is that the skies shift. Uh, this is a phenomenon called the precession, the precession of the equinoxes. It's an astronomical fact, um, but their thesis is that many, many ancient cultures were aware of this process, and they encoded 
the process into their mythology. So once again, it's that key um. of astronomy and mythology go together. Right, right. Okay, right. so, well, the Maya 2012 date is an end point, and it's part of their world age doctrine. Many ancient cultures have this world age doctrine. They believe, it basically states that uh, humanity goes through different long periods and there's you know a variety of different ways of framing it in terms of numbers of years mm -hmm. um, it's it's noticed most um, uh, it's very noticeable in the astrological doctrine of the 12 ages mm. yeah and um, so the the with the skies are shifting with precession and that's a phenomenon that's caused by the slow wobbling of the earth on its axis mm. so how to measure this you know this is a question how mm. to measure the world age shiftings and so on yeah and i i might add that the uh certainly this precession of the equinoxes is, is is something that is measurable and observed and we know it happens there is a guy whose name is walter cruttenden who has a new sort of uh take on uh, the actual source of precession, as opposed to this uh, wobble of, uh, of of the planet, uh, he he claims that it's actually caused by a binary star. But at any rate, uh, precession is something that uh, that we certainly observe and, and 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 has been measured for a long, long time, right? Right. And let and let's take just a slight sidetrack, and I'll mention that uh, Walter's work is very interesting, and I'm very open-minded about. Uh, looking at what he's putting on the table, mm -hmm. he has the Binary Research Institute, and he's been sponsoring conferences uh, for the last two to three years, mm -hmm. the Conference on Procession and Ancient Knowledge, mm -hmm. and I've participated in those. Okay. And they're, they're a great think tank. I think it's really raising the bar on, on researchers investigating ancient knowledge and ancient wisdom. So the, the thing about this, though, is that Regardless of whether we believe that precession is caused by the earth wobbling or, as Walter suggests, by um, the binary orbit, right, um, right. We, the effects are the same. Right. I mean, the thing is, the phenomenon is the same. What we're witnessing and seeing in the sky is right. the same either way. Yeah. Okay. And what we see is that the sun on the solstices is slowly shifting through the sky in relation to background features. Now, background features would be the constellations, the stars, and, and the Milky Way, for example. So in relation to those background features, the, the equinoxes and the solstices are shifting. And this is precession, the precession of the equinoxes, but it equally affects the solstices. Right. Now, how ancient sky watchers would see this is they'd be looking at the... Um, the changing positions of the sun on the solstices or the equinoxes and and how it's shifting into say for example a new constellation or maybe it's coming into closer conjunction with a particular star uh, in the background another very prominent feature that can be used to track procession would be the milky way hmm. and the milky way stretches overhead like a big finish line in the sky and the sun on the solstice is slowly, you know, moving towards this finish line. And in fact, this is what I'm getting at here is the alignment that culminates in 
the years around 2012. Basically, what this is, and it is an astronomical fact, is the alignment of the December solstice sun with the Milky Way. And that's why I call it a solstice galaxy alignment, mm -hmm. or just a galactic alignment, generally speaking. Um, and as Hamlet's Mill alluded to in a very circumspect way, but it is in there, uh, these alignments to the frame of the galaxy happen uh, once every quarter procession, you know, because it involves either either the equinoxes or the solstices. Mm -hmm. But when you, <clears throat> so it kind of depends on how you um, define it. If you use the specific term of the December solstice sun, well, the December solstice sun lines up with the Milky Way once every 13,000 years or half a procession cycle because a full procession cycle is 26,000 years. Right. Yeah. Right. So what's happening as we get closer and closer to 2012 is that the solstice point or the solstice sun, the sun on the solstice, is uh, going to be lining up with the uh, bright band of the Milky Way and that part of the Milky Way that contains the center of the Milky Way. The bright bulge in the center is called the nuclear bulge. Right. Well, that's the galactic center. It's, it's between Sagittarius and Scorpio. Right, right. And uh, so that's what we're approaching. And that's really a profound thing when you think about it. Mm. You know, we are lining up with the center of the galaxy yeah. in a way that happens only once every 26,000 years. Well, I'll tell you what, it, it's also profound because I, I exactly seven days ago I was talking to Dr. Paul LaViolette on the, on the phone, and uh, he, I think you're familiar with his work as well, I'm certain, uh -huh. I'm certain that you are, but, but he was very clear about the significance of Scorpio and Sagittarius and uh, uh, you know, events that uh, certainly occur at the center of galaxies from time to time, of which we don't really know the results, I don't think, uh, fully. But anyway, certainly stuff that uh, uh, that falls right in line with your work. And, and, and Jay Widener, of course, who was on the program just a few weeks ago, we got this whole eschatology thing going right now, I guess. So Yes, and Paul's work is very interesting, and... Um yeah, with the safer galaxies that erupt mm. into a greater activity. Very, very interesting. This then, it's also sort of what you're getting at here sort of defines the crossroads or the forking of paths, I think. Mm. Uh, or, or at least it sheds some light on how each of our uh, respective research is different because mm. my main sort of focus is to reconstruct the ancient Mayan belief system hmm. or paradigm or eschatology. And, um, you know, so we can start out with the intriguing and compelling fact that this alignment to the center of the galaxy happens to occur right when the Maya calendar ends. So, see, we have two different things that are coincident. Um, and we can say, wow, well, that means that the, the Maya must have, uh, must have been intending to target this galactic alignment with their mm. calendar. Well, sure, that's a possibility. But back in 94, I realized that I, I couldn't simply rest with the assertion of that. So that was really the beginning point of the research. 
you know, looking into Mayan mythology and the site of Izapa and the carved monuments from Izapa and Mayan traditions like the sacred ball game, I realized that the sacred ball game, the symbolism of that basically encodes the astronomical alignment. Huh. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's, uh, let's take a break. We're at the bottom of the hour. And uh, look, we'll come back. I want to ask you a question, actually, about the ball game because that was one that always blew me away, the idea that the, 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 the winner would go out to the midpoint and, and have his own head chopped off in some sort of a complete uh, opposite of what we think death exactly. to be. So, yeah. All right, well, look, let's do that. Let's take a break. We'll come back in just a few minutes with my guest. His name is John Major Jenkins. He's, uh, he's the author of a number of books of which you can find information on at his website, www.alignment2012.com that's alignment2012.com and you can also get there uh, very easily just from uh, going over to mikehagan.com and jump over to John's site from there okay all right we'll be back and talk with him for another 90 minutes and in the meantime we'll have a little bit of music from my friend Eskimo who's providing the music for this evening uh, this evening's conversation this one is called find you here and you can find me here, and you can also find Eskimo on the website as well at MikeHagan.com. Just instead of uh, clicking on John's site, click on the one that says Music, and then you'll be able to hear some more from Eskimo. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back with John Major Jenkins in just a moment.
Show. Great stuff from Brendan Angelides, a.k.a. Eskimo. You can find information about Eskimo on the website at Eskimo.com or uh, from MikeHagan.com. Click on the Music tab. All right, uh, this is Mike, and you are listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is John Major Jenkins, and uh, we've got John on the line live from his home in uh, northern Colorado. And we're talking about his research into the Mayan calendar and the history of of the Mayan culture and cosmology. And, John, I've got a couple of questions for you before we get on to uh, the Izapa cosmology, but a couple people called during the break there. Okay. And uh, I think you can probably handle these pretty quickly. One listener asked, how do we know that the alignment will occur? In other words, how do we know that the celestial event is actually one that we can 
that, that we know is going to occur forward in time? And I think the answer is software, but, but uh, why don't you go ahead and take that one? Well, yeah, it's uh, qu quite apparent that uh, the solstices and the equinoxes spin around the sky in a certain way. And, uh, you know, so it's just a matter of timing and calculation as to when it's going to happen and unless we are willing to believe that maybe procession will just suddenly stop. <laughs> right. Yeah. Certainly possible, but highly improbable. Yeah, and, and actually a good a good way, you know, for pe it, I do understand that it's a little bit hard to grasp this visually if it's just being explained, um, you know, on the air. Uh, I have uh, visual aids to, uh, to, 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 like, visualizing the process in my books and on my website, too. Um, if you just from the home page, if you click on the uh, what is the galactic alignment right there on the on the home page, it'll take you to another page that illustrates these things very nicely. Yeah, there's a great uh, piece actually at Nick Firenze's website too. That uh, right. di digital deal that he did. Oh, perfect. Yeah, I know he does have a very nice digital animation of of the uh, galactic alignment process. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's linked at your site. So yeah, go go over to John's site at Alignment 2012. And click on the one that says what is the uh, what is the galactic alignment, and there are some there's some uh, helpful imagery there, and there's also a link over to Nick Fiorenza's website that has this real cool animation. So yeah, very nice. All right, sounds good. Okay, so 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 we're basically able to project forward and backward in time uh, using just known values, basically. Yeah, and actually, um, you know, astronomers have calculated the galactic alignment, and I introduce um, what we really should be thinking about as a zone because the sun itself has width. Mm. And uh, astronomers calculate these things using the precise midpoints right. of like the midpoint of the sun, for example. But mm. the sun is half a degree wide. Mm. So I talk about, you know, just to be fair, I talk about a 36-year range. Right, a window, so to speak. Right, right. And, and so... Yeah, you know, it's really important to be clear about these things. Uh, I don't think there, there should be any controversy about whether or not the alignment does happen. Right, right. Um, so it's just a question of, of uh, how we define it. Mm, okay. All right, so that's one, and the next one is the sacred ball game. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Okay. The sacred ball game is very, very central to the Maya creation mythology. And the Maya ball players would use a um, their hips. They couldn't touch the ball. They had to uh, hit this big rubber ball into the stone goal ring. And the stone goal rings were up high on the walls of the ball courts. The ball courts were generally uh, long rectangular shaped fields that had angled walls. And uh, there'd be two teams. And uh, the thing to understand about the ball game is that it wasn't so much about athletic prowess, although that was part of it. The real purpose of the ball game was that it was a mystery play. So you had uh, different um, mythological uh, players, like, for example, the ball itself, refers to the creation mythology in which the uh, the game ball in the creation myth was the severed head mm. of the hero twin's father. And uh, so there's this whole mystery play 
mythology that plays itself out in the reenactment of the creation myth on the ball field. On the ball field. Yeah. How, how often was the game played? Well, that's a good question. Um, probably during festival times. Mm -hmm. um, I would say it was probably for sure played uh, during the harvest of corn, during the harvest season, which would be, uh, you know, midsummer mm -hmm. or late summer. Mm -hmm. um, but the symbology of the of the ball game suggests that it was about the death and rebirth of the sun, because mm -hmm. the game ball was a symbol of the sun lord and you know his severed head and then when the ball goes into the goal ring that was like symbolizing that the sun is reborn so it's a victory of the of the powers of light over the powers of darkness mm -hmm. the lords of the underworld and so that designation refers to the the time of the year of the winter solstice because that's when the previous Sun dies and the new mm, sun is the born. New sun is born. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you you mentioned the hero twins. Maybe you could expand a little bit for people who aren't that familiar with the with with the creation mythology of the Maya. Uh, a little bit about the, the the story of the hero twins. Okay. Uh, in simple form, it's basically began with the hero twins' father. Uh, and he was a, a prime, primary solar lord, and uh, he's playing the ball game, and he's practicing, and uh, he's making a racket. And uh, the lords of the underworld, which, of course, they're below the earth, uh, they, you know, challenge him to a ball game. So he has to journey into the underworld. And to journey into the underworld, he has to pass through the... Shabalba Bay, which is the road to the underworld. Now, this designation, and it's in the creation myth, and Dennis Tedlock parses this out very nicely, the Shabalba Bay, the road to the underworld, is also in the sky. And it's the, uh, the place along the Milky Way that's uh, referred to as the Dark Rift. This is a great cleft along the Milky Way that's caused by interstellar dust. Right. So... I'm just mentioning this just to show how the mythology is, is very, very intimately wrapped up with the astronomy. So Wanhunapu, the hero twin's father, he journeys into the underworld, and he's tricked by the Dark Lords, and they cut his head off, and they hang it in a tree, and he eventually impregnates Blood Moon, and she gives birth to the hero twins. Mm. So, you know, their father... Uh, they don't really know him. You know, he was sacrificed by the Dark Lords. But they find out what happened when they find their father's ball game equipment in the rafters of their grandmother's house. <laughs> so they they make a vow to avenge the death of their father. And not only that, but they're going to resurrect him. So right away, the main storyline of the creation myth is the rebirth of the Sun Lord. And the hero twins are going to facilitate the rebirth of their father, the first Sun Lord. Now, the astronomical designation of the Hero Twins' father as the first Solar Lord, the first Sun, the first Sun of the year, would be the December Solstice Sun. So he, he is a representative of the December Solstice Sun. So the Hero Twins, they too journey to the underworld and do battle 
with the lords of the underworld, but uh, they're very tricky, and they trick the dark lords and sacrifice them. In fact, this whole final scene uh, takes place in the ball court, and, and this is where the creation myth plays itself out. And uh, So finally, at the end of the story, they are able to successfully uh, resurrect their their father and return him to his rightful uh, place and so this is all uh, played out in the ball court and it is the central creation mythology but it also speaks to the doctrine of the world ages because in the creation myth uh, they speak about the previous world ages and the culmination of the ball court battle scene with the hero twins that is the culmination of the uh, the battle between the forces of light and darkness that occurs at the end of an age so this is an eschatological uh, myth and um, so because of that it basically refers to the uh, events that play themselves out at least symbolically uh, in 2012 yeah, you know, and it, uh, just as an observation, it it's very similar to the Egyptian uh, creation mythology. That's right. Yes, and a number of other ones too, I think. That's right. It <laughs> is a common archetypal theme, um, and basically, I think it is a common theme that you see. What I refer to it as the end times dynamic. Now, and I don't mean the end of the world in some definitive sense. The end of a cycle the end of a cycle in nature whether it's the end of a lunar cycle or a solar cycle or a vast 26,000 year processional cycle there are certain uh, dynamics or processes that unfold during the end the end state yeah, yeah I think that's fair yeah and it's basically you know the the polarization the polar the pulling apart and we see this in the world today actually in the world political stage my gosh it's so polarized it's us against them and mm. this kind of this kind of talk and yeah the forces of light and the forces of darkness uh pulling apart yeah it sure seems that that seems to be coming more apparent uh, regardless of what your <clears throat> particular mythology of choice is you know that's just sort of in your face right right all right well look uh one more quick one here before we get too deeply into the Izapa, uh, uh, the Izapan cosmology. Uh, there's a question that I have in email here, and I got the computer working again. So uh, I have a question here from email that says, "Well, it, let me summarize." He's interested in the correlation question. Oh, okay. You know. Yes, this is a very important question, and my early, early research was involved in, in settling this question. All right, let's explain what it is really quickly, and then maybe you okay. can give a little uh, solution to it. Well, it's basically the question of how the Maya, correlate, the Maya calendar correlates with our own so we can say with certainty what day it is today in the Maya calendar. Ah, yeah, so and, you can't just randomly say, well, this is what, so, so you can set it up. Right, and, and the most important consequence of this is that we can say with certainty when the end of the, of the long count cycle is. Right. In other words, why is it December 21st, 2012? Well, it's because we, the correlation question is settled. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a long, that was a long process in, in Mayan, uh, scholar, you know, scholars worked on that for many decades and, and, uh, settled the question, 
basically by 1950 the question was settled mm -hmm. although there's been you know different factions throughout the years that uh, you know suggest alternate correlations okay all right well so here we are so you you're 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 in Maya land you're in Mexico and you realize that that uh, af after all of your research that this thing ties in and that there's really an alignment in the sky that matches up with the end date and so at that point where is this when you when you f follow further back and try to find the source of the calendar itself is this when you go to Izapa yeah this is kind of like the watershed you know all the other researchers that we've mentioned the Tedlocks and and so on uh, have fed into um, the education bringing me to the point of basically the the brink of what is knowable and and so it's then a question of synthesizing it all into a reasonable reconstruction and to show how this alignment scenario uh, was encoded into the basic core institutions of the Maya is really the unique thing that I put on the table showing how the end date alignment and the astronomical features involved in that are really key players in the Maya mythology as well as the sacred ball game and other things too like uh, king crowning ceremonies and so on and so so just also uh, just another interesting sort of context that might be interesting by this time in my life uh, 1994 I was living uh, back in Colorado and um, I'm an independent scholar and so I don't get support from the universities to do this and all my trips down to Mexico by that time I'd taken five trips and they were all done on my own uh, dime on a shoestring and saving up money working jobs and uh, going for sometimes four weeks sometimes six weeks mm -hmm. and uh, so then you know, I basically realized that I was going to have to do some serious research into this, and so I set my life up so that I could live very simply and uh, just work a part-time job. And so after I sort of made this, this, found the key, and that key being that Izapa was the place to look, I realized I was going to have to sit down for several years and really parse this thing out. And uh, that's what I did. So 1994, 95, 96. By the end of 96, I'd really gotten uh, gotten the whole thing downloaded and was in the process of writing my uh, Maya Cosmogenesis 2012. Right, which came out, what, was it 97 or 98 that that came out? It, it came out with Baron Company in, in uh, June of 1998, but I always liked to... Um, my early books were self-made and self-published, and uh, I always liked to do it that way. Mm. Um, and, uh, of course, the one with Borderlands was published with them, but I always like to bring a project to completion. It's almost like if you're a creative artist and you're writing a song mm. you have to like push it out it's like giving birth mm -hmm. you, know, you have to complete the thing you know and, and get it out uh, into manifestation and so I actually had completed the prototype copy myself in uh, mid 97 and uh, actually distributed some of those at some of the events that I was doing at the time 
um, in in, in uh, mid '97, I was invited to present my research, which promised to be uh, a, a really amazing breakthrough in the realm of of Mayan studies. I was invited to present my research at the Institute of Maya Studies mm-hmm. in Miami. So that really was uh, a breakthrough, and there was a lot of good feedback at that time uh, on the uh, the new connections that I had made. Yeah, I wanted to mention that you had been asked uh, and and had had taught as a guest um, scholar, I guess is the word for it, to, to teach at a number of pretty prestigious institutions. So, yeah, and uh, around this time, my friendship with Terence was. Uh, becoming closer hmm. I had asked him in late 97 if he'd like to write the introduction to the book simply because I looked to him as a person who was doing a person that had tuned into the archetypal importance hmm. of 2012 hmm, no question about that from his own perspective of right. course but also I recognized him as really the first a person in print with his brother Dennis in that book that they wrote in 1975, The Invisible, right, Landscape, the Invisible Landscape, that they had mentioned that there would be this alignment happening around the turn of the century. Hmm. So, you know, you got to give credit where credit's due. And also, I was always inspired by how Terrence could elaborate on very complex things mm, in gosh. a way that was accessible and clear. Yeah, he was he was in one of his favorite words, he was astonishing. <laughs> so okay, well look, let's uh take a break here and that's a good place to take one. We'll come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Terence and we'll talk more about the uh Izapa revelations. And I think that we can tie uh some some more of Terence's and Dennis's work uh into this story as well and that is the use of uh, entheogenic plants or uh, I guess the mushrooms not really a plant uh, but we can uh, look at that a little bit too okay John okay all right sounds good my guest is John Major Jenkins and you can find information about John and his work on the web at alignment2012.com you can also get there directly from my site at MikeHagan.com. Just scroll down a little bit and you'll see exactly what to do. All right, we'll come back and we'll talk more with John. Very, very interesting conversation, and I expect more of it. Uh, we've got another hour with him, so we'll get deeper and deeper into this very interesting uh, phenomena that is upon us. Uh, or I guess it's, a, it, it's, what do we call it, a theory at this point? But it, regardless of what it is, in six years and... Uh, nine months we're going to find out so we'll talk more about it with john in just a few minutes in the meantime we will play another song by my good friend brendan and this is well let's see we've been talking about the ball game so let's play in the park this one is called in the park this is eskimo and you're listening to it on radio orbit this is mike hagan i'll be back in just a few minutes with john major jenkins
All right, that's another one from Eskimo. And that one was called In the Park. This is Mike Hagen, and you are listening to Radio Orbit. All right, my guest, if you haven't been listening for the last hour, that's unfortunate for you, but it's fortunate that you're listening now. And it's also fortunate that I put all of these up on the web after they're done, so people who miss the live broadcast can listen to them on the web. And they can also uh, sign up for podcasts so they just sort of magically appear in your RSS uh, inbox, so to speak. So anyway, all right, uh, let's see. We've got John Major Jenkins on the line with us, live from Colorado. We are talking about uh, the Mayan calendar and the implications thereof. John, we were just sort of uh, beginning to touch on the Izapa cosmology because this uh, discovery of the galactic alignment led you to Izapa and it sounds like you sort of decided to immerse yourself down there for a while. Well, I did make several trips down there uh, to examine the site and look at the carvings. Uh, but in fact, a lot of the research uh, was done stateside, uh, mainly accessing the very good information that was uh, done by the Brigham Young University Really? Uh, in their study of the site of Izapa. Hmm. Um, and uh, so with that data on hand, uh, I was able to uh, examine uh, the original line drawings of the carvings that were found at the site in the uh. 1950s and 60s, because even though they had since reset them, the carvings, uh, they had eroded quite a bit, being exposed to the weather. Uh, the beautiful thing about Izapa is that uh, the site was a ceremonial site, and there's over 60 carved monuments, uh, and they're pictographic monuments, not like hieroglyphics. So mm. there's like pictures of the hero twins and so on. Mm. And the site was basically left undisturbed since the time that it was abandoned about oh oh about 1900 years ago. So the carvings, although they had some of them had toppled down, luckily face down in the mud and so on, so that the things were preserved, um, the archaeologists were able to reset the monuments in their correct orientations and so on. Uh, so that's the amazing thing about the site of Izapa. Um, yeah, that was uh, that was one of my questions. Was these um, carvings that you're talking about? of which they did tracings or uh, what do they do? They lay something over it? and Tracings or good, you know, angle light photo photography. Mm. And then they'll do line drawings on the photograph, yeah. Okay, but, but the, the carvings themselves are on these uh, monuments of sorts. Yeah, these or... big stone monuments. Uh, some of them are, you know, over six feet tall. Uh, and... and uh, so there's different monument groups at the site of Izapa, and uh, scholars don't really, you know, archaeologists haven't really known how to talk about Izapa because it's it's pre-Maya, technically speaking, or early Maya perhaps, mm -hmm. and uh, the characteristics, the motifs, uh, they're not recognizably Mayan, although some of the little ornaments are, um, part of you know, partly are. And there's also Olmec influence. Mm -hmm. So the Olmec mm -hmm. people were the early, early culture in Mesoamerica. They go back to like 1500 B.C. Mm. 
and the Maya didn't really emerge into their classic period phase until about 200 AD mm. and Izapa occupies the middle point you know Izapa was experiencing its heyday around oh around uh, 200 BC 100 BC mm. and that's precisely when these carvings were carved and it's also when the first the very first uh Monuments carved with the long count calendar are found mm -hmm. in the archaeological record. Okay, interesting. In that, in that region of Azapa. Interesting. All right, and uh, as another reminder, if you want to jump on the web, uh, again, go over to either my site at mikehagan.com and then click over to John's site at alignment2012.com. And then from there, uh, on John's front page, there is another link that's just below the one that we talked about earlier, and this one is called. Uh, Izapan Cosmos, and uh, it's about the uh, uh, the cosmology that we're talking about. And there's some some of these carvings and things that John is uh, talking about are right here. There are images of them at the site. Those are great, John. By the way. Oh, thanks. Yeah, there's fo photographs there as well as line drawings that I made, um, and also for for listeners that may have been to my site before, they should go back to it again because I just relaunched the site. Uh, just last week, so it's it's got a new look and it's got uh, uh, many new pages and links. Yeah, this one image uh, actually of the that I was looking at at the break is the ball uh, the ball court that we were talking about before. Yeah, pretty cool, amazing how how this whole thing is laid out. Well, that's that's the picture right there, and and I think of the the ball court at Izapa is really ground zero of the 2012 prophecy. Hmm. Because of the six or seven monuments that are there and the symbolism of those monuments, and especially the way that the ball court lines up with the rise position of the sun on the solstice, uh, there's, there's a whole encoded cosmology right there at Azapa, and it's, it's really very astounding, as parents might say. It's astounding. Yeah. This site of Azapa, it's it's in some of the carved monuments the the symbolism even like regular scholars will point out that well here's the milky way here's the cosmic alligator and that's the milky way and here's the bird deity and that's the big dipper constellation so so even scholars will give you the pieces to the puzzle but integrating that all together into one holistic picture is the big step that had to be made, and, and that's the contribution that, that I've put on the table. Hmm. All right, well, uh, let's talk about those monuments a little bit more, especially the ones around the ballpark. I mean, it seems like, as you say, that's ground zero, so let's start there and talk a little bit about w what, uh, what's encoded in these monuments and, uh, and why it's so important, I guess. Okay. Well, basically, the monuments of the ball court at Izapa they're they're encoding information about the creation myth. Okay. So basically, the creation myth is um, it's it's like a, a battle between the father of the hero twins is the one who got his head cut off, mm -hmm. and he is going to get resurrected or reinstalled as the true ruler at the end of the age. Uh, he's kind of like the sun being reborn at the winter solstice. Okay, okay. and and also let's um, uh, let's resolve one thing that we just sort of alluded to earlier, and this was what happened at the end of the ball game. Yes. Right. Yes. 
Okay, maybe you can talk about that a little bit because that's the that's the representation, I think, right? Well, sure. And what happens at the end of the ball game is that the the game ball gets kicked through the goal ring. Okay. Now the symbology of this, which we didn't mes- mention before when we were talking about the ball game, is that the uh, game ball is the is the December solstice sun, and the goal ring is that dark rift in the Milky Way near the galactic center. Right, that, that dusty area we were talking about. Right. Uh, ball courts basically uh, symbolize the Milky Way and the goal ring of the ball court, which is generally on the high wall in the center mm-hmm. of the field. Uh, that uh, game, that uh, goal ring, is the dark rift. The dark rift looks like a hole or a door or a portal mm. uh, in the Milky Way in the sky. And so the astronomical alignment in 2012 is symbolized by the game ball going through the goal ring. Hmm. And this is also uh, symbolic of the head of the hero twin's father being restored to his body so that he could be reborn at the end of the age. Okay. Yeah. Mm, I see. And this is on the monuments uh, at Izapa. Now... Now, what happens to, is, I guess I need to ask, is it uh, a legend or is it a true part of the mythology that the captain of the winning team at that point is beheaded himself? Well, that is something that was played out in the ball games throughout uh, Mayan history, and it does go back to this mythological prototype. Yeah, it sort of sounds like that. And the reason why the good guys, in a sense, you might say, mm-hmm. the good guys get their heads cut off. Right, the winner. Yeah, like for example, that why does the hero twin's father have to have his head cut off? Mm. Uh, and, and the reason for that, it, it gets into a deep, a kind of a deep philosophical discussion right. about um, consciousness uh, in the ups and downs of history. You know, there's cycles in time, and like, say, the moon cycle, for example, there's periods of increasing darkness, and then there's periods of increasing light. And uh, to draw from a well-known tradition, Christianity talks about the fall and then the restoration of mankind. This is just an insight into the fact that consciousness must lose itself and then travel the path of history and at the end of history, consciousness restores itself into right relationship with its source. Right. This is the redemption. Right. So right. now, to answer your question, the game players, this is a kind of a counterintuitive thing, that the winners of the ball game would be the ones who got sacrificed. Right. Well, this is partly explained by what I just described, but there's also another aspect to this, and that is that um, uh, the sacrifice ritual in in Mesoamerican religion, um, I mean, originally, symbolically, it had to do with uh, sacrificing the ego. Now, this isn't like annihilating the ego, the ego being the individual self. Mm-hmm. When we're over-identified with our egos or our individual selves, then the light of our true natures cannot be seen. So the, the, what that symbolizes, 
sacrificing oneself, uh, what that symbolizes is placing our egos into right relationship with our true selves. And in so doing, our, our egos, in a sense, become transparent. Hmm. They don't get annihilated. Right. Uh, now, what there's a later degradation to this basically spiritual teaching that happened in Mayan history in which there'd be a literal sacrifice. Right. Right. And uh, that that's where it uh, it gets a little complicated. Okay, all right, um, all right. Let's talk a little bit more about the monuments and the, the fact that all of this stuff is encoded on them in these carvings. The nature of the carvings is primarily the creation mythology. Are they telling the whole story? Is that what's being? Yeah, it's basically telling the creation myth. And there's another player in this. Um, it's a really a key player in the creation myth. Um, Seven Macaw is the vain and false ruler of the previous world age. Okay. He's kind of like one of the uh, dark lords, mm. and the hero twins have to do away with him before they can reinstate their father, resurrect their father. Okay. And there's a real interesting battle that takes place between the bird deity of the north and the uh, hero twins' father who's going to be resurrected when he comes into alignment with the center of the galaxy. You know, that this is the astronomical component of it. Right. So the bird deity is basically portrayed on the monuments of Azapa as a bird, and it's the Big Dipper constellation in the north. Mm. And uh, in the ball court, you have the hero twins. On one of the monuments, for example, you have one of the hero twins standing over the bird deity who has fallen down to the ground. And this is an episode in the Popol Vuh that mm. Dennis Tedlock translated. Right, right. It's and you the, see it played out right there. Yeah, and it's played out right there at Azapa. And the, the intriguing thing about this is that the carvings of Azapa do portray key episodes in the, the creation myth that we know as the Popol Vuh. But the Popol Vuh <clears throat> was actually recorded by Kiche Maya elders in the 1550s. And that Latin transcription of their stories survived the centuries until it was translated, and, and Dennis Tedlock did one of the translations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but the monuments of Azapa are dated to like, you know, 200 BC. BC. So right, right. they're like 1600, 1700 years older than the when the Popol Vuh was recorded. So. Mm -hmm. So it's like the earliest manifestation of the Maya creation myth happens at Izapa. Wow. And hey, yeah. Hey, uh, John, can I ask you sort of a tangential question here? Sure. Uh, have you ever been to Palenque? Sure. What? Uh, could you make just sort of a quick compare and contrast between Palenque and a place like Izapa? Because I know Palenque is very important too. Well, Palenque preserved some of the. Um, you know the the basic core teachings and <clears throat> some of the astronomical symbolism that you see on the carvings from Izapa mm -hmm. is also reflected on the carvings at Palenque huh. for example the sacred tree motif uh, that's the the sacred tree is basically the cross formed by the Milky Way and the ecliptic huh. and that is basically what the ball court at Izapa represents and at Palenque the sarcophagus lid of the seventh century king Pakal. Yeah, Lord Pakal. Yeah. yeah, that famous.
sarcophagus lid carving where he's, you know, seems like he's sitting in a spaceship. You know, Eric von Donneken wrote about that. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's actually preparing to enter the road, and the road is the dark rift in the Milky Way because he's about to make his afterlife journey into the underworld. Mm -hmm. And it's right there. So, yeah, Palenque is also interesting, too, because around Palenque, there are uh, many uh, shamanic plants, plants mm -hmm. that shamans use to alter the consciousness and divine the location of lost objects mm -hmm. and so on. There's basically psilocybin mushrooms grow in the region of, of Palenque. And <clears throat> although today it's not true, back about 2,000 years ago, it's quite apparent that psilocybin mushrooms also grew in the region of Izapa because archaeologists have found uh, ceremonial mushroom stones all over uh, in the region around Izapa. So this actually brings up a very interesting discussion about what were the influences on the Izapan shaman astronomers. Yeah, my I, I have as one of my questions here. I was going to say, you know, okay, we we've 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 pretty much clarified exactly what's happening with the galactic alignment. We know that it occurs. We know that it's a scientific fact. We know when it's going to happen. We know uh, that the Mayan calendar uh, basically ends, or the cycle at least ends, at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, so the question then becomes, well, why did they spend so much time uh, uh, worrying about it, why, why was it such, a, such an important part of their, uh, their society, their culture, their uh, mythology, and how did they determine that it was important? Well, this is a very interesting discussion, and uh, I think it has to do with the evolution of, of cosmology in human history, which is just to say that as time goes on, human beings are ever seeking to understand how they fit into the vast universe in in deeper and bigger ways so we see a natural evolution of of cosmological modeling in the history of western science where you know we had the geocentric model for so many centuries and then there was of course there was the copernican revolution in the 1500s and we went to a heliocentric model. Well, there's even a larger framework than that. Mm -hmm. it's, it's the level of the galaxy. Right. And then we belong one. to this galaxy. Mm -hmm. And I think that these tools of consciousness expansion, like uh, psilocybin mushrooms, and um, the kind of effects that psilocybin mushrooms have on the human mind, is one of enlarging the mind's ability to grasp larger and larger perspectives mm. and frameworks. So from that uh, viewpoint, it's, it's quite easy to understand why a culture that was using these tools would have opened up its gaze to this galactic level of, of model-making. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, well, i tell you what. Let's... Um I want to go further into this, all right? Mm -hmm. But let's take a break, and we'll come back in about five minutes, and that'll give us a good uh, a good 25 minutes or so 
to uh, to go uninterrupted and tie it all together. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right, John. Hold on just a second here. My guest is John Major Jenkins. We've been uh, fortunate enough to have John with us for the last hour and a half. We've got another half hour with him, and it's just a fascinating conversation. Hope you'll stick around. We're going to play another piece of music here from Eskimo. This one is called Isle of Sky. And we'll come right back with John Major Jenkins in just a few minutes. And uh, if I haven't said it enough yet, get on the web. Go over to MikeHagan.com and then click over to John's site at www.alignment2012.com. And lots of the stuff that we're talking about tonight is available there for future reference as well. It's, uh, uh, some of it is quite extensive and it requires some concentration, but it's there. And there's a lot of other stuff there. There's books. And, um, John, do you have a DVD? I think you do have a special DVD uh, thing. Three DVDs from a recent presentation that they're on sale on my, on my site. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, so those are available as well. If you're interested in what you're hearing tonight, there's plenty more available. Uh, a lot of it doesn't cost you anything. And um, some of it does. So go check it all out. All right. Okay. Uh, this is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit one more time. This is... Uh, Brendan Angelides, and the song is called Isle of Sky.
more great stuff there from Brendan Angelides that was called Isle of Sky. And this is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is and has been John Major Jenkins, and we're in the middle of a fascinating conversation. John, uh, before the break, we basically are talking about the fact that the shamans in these ancient Mayan cultures, primarily this, uh, this one in Izapa, and also... Uh, in Palenque, but uh, Izapa is the one we're concentrating on, at some point in the distant past discovered mushrooms that were psilocybin-containing. And and as we know, for people that are frequent listeners of this program, the the mushroom in the right context with reverence and respect and intelligence and the right dose can be a great teacher. So they apparently had that figured out long before anybody here did oh i believe so uh... it's, it's quite apparent that uh... shamans uh, have mastered the techniques of uh... traveling in consciousness and exploring uh... the architecture of the human psyche you might say and and thereby coming to an appreciation for the architecture of the universe at large <laughs> it's a very different way of approaching knowledge gathering uh, as compared to our Western scientific method which seeks to you know gather data and make graphs and then postulate hypotheses about how the universe works the shamanistic perspective indigenous cultures uh, around the world really and even in uh, Western esoteric traditions you know like the hermetic adage is as above so below certainly yeah which is which could be construed as meaning that if you go deep within you can come to a direct gnostic you might say mm. gnosis meaning you know direct knowledge, knowledge. direct experience mm. of of the way that the universe works yeah and, and and for those who think this is far out uh you can even look as close as the christian uh tradition and look at the lord's prayer the our father so to i believe it's called you know and in, in that particular prayer they say the same thing it's a little bit worded a little bit differently but it says on earth as it is in heaven exactly and so these are these are representing the same ideas obviously once you start to look closely at them that's right that's right and specifically at, at the site of Izapa, um it's it's very amazing because one of the carved monuments uh stila six monument six it shows a uh, Bufo Marinas toad, which actually uh, is one of the toads that secretes uh, 5-MeO-DMT. <laughs> and we're not really sure how they might have prepared this because that is a little bit different chemically from the DMT, standard. the dimethyltryptamine that Terrence McKenna talks about quite a bit, which is a very, very potent hallucinogen. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, this carving, <clears throat> the the... Toad secretions would be harvested from the glands on the toad's uh, back or shoulder mm -hmm. in that region. And on this carving, uh, there's actually vision scrolls, what scholars call vision scrolls, coming out of the little dots on the, on the glands of the back of this frog. Amazing. And the frog's neck is craned upwards and his, uh, his mouth is wide open, and in his mouth, or Seemingly journeying into the mouth of the frog is a little shaman in a canoe, which is just to say that 
it's it's basically saying that with this frog you can journey <clears throat> make a vision journey into the maw of the underworld hmm. uh, which is just to say that um, in the sky basically uh, so yeah that's that's one clue that the shamans of Izapa were accessing or availing themselves of the uh, various consciousness expanding tools in in their environment okay well this this now gets really interesting because uh, okay well before we go quite that far let's talk about what they determine in other words they obviously determine that this particular galactic alignment that we've been talking about all night is of some uh, some significance in other words more significant than any other particular alignment yes all right, so maybe let's talk about that a little bit, and then we have to talk about the fact that Terence and Dennis did uh, uh, approach this thing from a completely different perspective, but somehow arrive at the same date, and then uh, mm -hmm. th th then it it really gets uh, it really gets interesting. <laughs> well, it certainly does. Uh... So, what did they find out? What do you think that they thought was going to happen that okay. was so significant about this alignment? Well, we, we can, this is the beauty of simply reconstructing from the direct source material, the primary source material, which is the creation myth and the carvings at the site. Okay. So I'm not really injecting my own sort of speculations here. I'm really just reading the monuments. Right. Okay. Basically, the, the monuments say that 2012 being anchored to this alignment, basically it's about coming back into connection with our cosmic heart and source mm. so now having said that we sort of detach from the astronomical references and we enter into the metaphysical or philosophical or spiritual teachings about what happens at the end of a cycle mm. so at the end of a cycle whether it's the end of our own lives which our life cycle uh, goes to the end point of death the teaching is really about uh, cyclic time and what is beyond death but new life. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and of course, again, this is a realm that the mushrooms, etc., uh, are availing us to. That's right, and, and really the, the experience of death is an experience that we will all uh, encounter, but in the initiatory schools, initiation into direct knowledge of what it is to be human a lot of these schools of course had a sacred sacrament of some kind like mm. the mysteries of Eleusis sure I believe that Azapa also was an initiatory center mm. in which people would uh, be initiated into this larger galactic cosmology or framework and the spiritual teaching about this is that as I mentioned briefly before it has to do with the relationship between our individual selves, our ego selves, and our true eternal selves. Mm -hmm. So if we just sort of flip back to the uh, sort of tangible scenario with we're coming into alignment with the galactic center. Mm -hmm. And the, that's a symbol of the cosmic heart and source. The Maya actually saw it as the... Uh, the the heart or womb of the great Milky Way mother goddess. Yeah, and it's not it's not a metaphor anymore. Dr. Paul makes it very clear that the galactic center is a source of 
the generation or the creation of matter, the creation of the, the, the galaxy itself. That's right, that's right. And inside of our deep subjective experience of, of uh, like, pe- people that have a, um, sort of a revelation or a born-again experience, they actually feel like they've come into contact with uh, God or Jesus or Krishna, or, or they feel like they've, um, they've had a glimpse of their true source. Mm. And, and that can only happen when the ego is temporarily eclipsed or made transparent, or, you know, Terrence, Terrence would talk about the effects of, say, psilocybin mushrooms is that you have a boundary, an ego-dissolving experience. Right, right. Uh, and uh, the, the purpose, of course, is not to permanently annihilate the ego, but to give the ego a sense of how it is related to the larger picture. So then when you come back down from that glimpse, your life can be reoriented in a in a correct way to you know it's it's basically a teaching about uh, coming into right relationship with the cosmic heart and source yeah and you come back with a broader perspective right so if there's a prophecy to be to be stated the prophecy is basically that at the end of the cycle um well, I didn't really preface this correctly but at the end of the cycle all the shadows are coming out screaming for integration so it's kind of a crazy time mm. there's a lot of noise yeah. uh, basically the ego uh, is ruling and ruining the planet mm. so this is the lesson in the creation myth regarding the vain and false ruler of the previous world age seven macaw he had to be put in his place by the hero twins right. he had to be they had to make him fall they had to humble him they had to humble ego so that their father, Wanhunapu, could be reinstated. Now, he's sort of an important guy because he is the one that's united with the galactic center, you see. So it's kind of like the eternal true self then takes the upper hand in steering the rudder of history. Okay, uh, all right. Now, okay, you mentioned steering the rudder. Is this related to the canoe image? Sure. Exactly. Well, it's all tied together. There's the symbolism works um, on many different levels, and that too is really intriguing because the way that the Milky Way can be symbolized by the ball court or the canoe mm. or the river or the road, it speaks for a kind of multi-dimensional uh, mind frame, you might say, mm-hmm. and, and that kind of ability to to integrate a multi-dimensional perspective is also a hallmark a hallmark of the uh, psychedelic experience right 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 and one of the main reasons why it's so frightening to establishments i guess that's right that's you know, right it's just political dynamite because it does give you a broader perspective one that isn't particularly wanted by those in power exactly exactly and your final uh, point on why uh, the, the use of um, you know uh, psilocybin mushrooms as a consciousness expanding uh, experience and, and used in the proper way and so on mm-hmm. would uh, convey somebody with an ability to to sort of see the importance of 2012. Well, I think that it just has to do with um, <clears throat> when the when the consciousness is freed from being anchored to the limited 
uh, sense of self-identification, it will naturally gravitate to its attention to the the center of energy in the local mm. universe, I guess. Mm. Mm. That's maybe not a real good answer. Um, it's something that needs to be talked about and languaged. Um, right, I agree. I think that it has to do, in, in my process anyway, it had to do with uh, being able to integrate and synthesize large amounts of information from many different disciplines. And again, that speaks for the multidimensional perspective that, um, you know, one, one can uh, strive to achieve. And so because the Maya shaman astronomers, I believe, were really of a, of a multidimensional mindset, it takes a similar mindset in order to mm. see or grok, as you would say, mm. what they were about. I understand. Well, it is amazing stuff, John. So, so let's talk a little bit more about Terence and the fact that uh, because he did write the foreword to the book, and uh, and it, it actually blew me away because when I uh, read your book. I'm not sure if I heard you interviewed on Coast to Coast or something. I was a big Art Bell fan at the time, and it was before I was doing radio myself. But or it may have been on Jeff Rents. I don't know, but uh, it was one of those two. I'm certain of it. But yeah, I got interviewed by Art Bell in uh, August of '98, I think. Yeah, because I got I got your book in 1998, and I know it was it had just come out, and I had um, only shortly before that. Uh, struck up a conversation uh, of my own with Terrence uh, over the web. I had become involved with a with a group that was called the Novelty Group, which is a whole other story. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> anyway, um, so but I had no idea that you and he, you know, were in communication and friends and all that. So anyway, I opened your book and saw the foreword by Terrence, and I was blown away. And uh, uh, it uh, it was before I had read uh, Invisible Landscape. So then, of course, I read that, and uh, and I was interested in the I Ching uh, long before, and it is just remarkable. Uh, so maybe you can talk a little bit about what Terence did, how he sort of came to his conclusions with regard to the I Ching in this completely different methodology, and what you guys did together. Well, it's a very fascinating story of how uh, Terence uh, came to understand the inner wave form inside of the I Ching and I think that was a brilliant uh, deduction that he made about the I Ching is made up of 64 hexagrams but each one of those hexagrams has either a broken line or a mm. solid line right. and it makes a six layered hexagram so you've got basically then six times 64 uh, which is 384 units of change and so Terence really figured out a way to track the differences of change from, from hexagram to hexagram. And there's a specific order of the I Ching hexagrams that's called the King Wen sequence. The King Wen sequence, right. And in that uh, sequence, uh, there's a certain wave form that gets generated. And Terence, uh, one of the brilliant things I think that he really put on the table was this idea that time is not constant in the way that Western science likes to think that if you do an experiment on Tuesday, there's no reason to expect that the same exact experiment, if you do it on Thursday, is going to be any different. Mm. But the fact is, or apparently, uh, time does have 
different qualities at different times. And, and this is what Terrence labeled uh, novelty. Right. You know, and, and that's, that's something that deserves a little bit more discussion just really quickly. You know, there is this thing that the scientists call, um, they call it return to original conditions. I think that's what they call it. They call it the return to original conditions. And that basically means that after an experiment, they basically return to the situation that they were in before the experiment occurred. Well, there's no such thing. Uh, and I think that's the point that Terrence was trying to make because, uh, and you've made it really clear, I mean, this is not a static situation that we're in. The earth is moving. The, the, the sun is moving. The galaxy is moving. We're never in the same place twice. Uh -huh. So there are always different effects, whether they may be minuscule or whatever. You cannot say that we can ever return to original conditions. It's sort of like you can never go home, that old adage, you know? That's right, right. And the, I think the important point uh, that has to be made is, is that Terrence, working in the mid-'70s, he realized that this novelty wave, it was kind of like a, a string getting wrapped around a, a central pole, mm -hmm. and it gets, as you wrap a string around, like the tetherball game, you know, the, the ball goes flipping around, the central pole goes faster and faster and faster, mm -hmm. and then, boom, you're at the center. Mm -hmm. Well, t the novelty factor is speeding up, number one, and number two, there has to be a moment in the historical timeline that the wave reaches its end point. This is the theory, as Terence was parsing it out in the mid-'70s. Well, he, he looked at demographic graphs on population and pollution and resource depletion and so on, and and he picked uh, somewhere in 2012 would have to be the end of the wave. And then uh, later, a, a short time later on, somebody pointed out to him that, well, you know, Terrence, the, the Maya calendar ends in December 21st, 2012. So he looked at that, and, and his novelty wave theory, the time wave zero theory, uh, uh, got formulated at that point. Now, it should also be said that he, he was aware of the uh, the alignment that was culminating towards the end of the millennium, as alluded to in the book Hamlet's Mill. Right, right. But and I thought I think Terence thought that was really an intriguing separate confirmation of of his work, and but I, he didn't really pursue exploring that uh, in terms of you know the Maya calendar end date, and 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 the way that I explored that was to show how the Astronomy of the end date alignment scenario is is really encoded deeply into the core Mayan institutions like the ball game and so on. Mm. So we really sort of uh, tracked the 2012 thing from from different perspectives, and yet came to the same conclusion about it being uh, about a transformation. About uh, you know, Terence would talk about it as uh, going to the next plane or the uh, the singularity at the end of time, the eschaton manifesting. At, the, at any rate, he didn't talk about it as a, as a, like a doomsday annihilation, as we see so often in the world, in, in, in the marketplace today, that so many people are talking about the doomsday of 2012. And I think that that just needs to be sort of called for what it is, which is basically um, uh, a not very 
intelligent market marketing strategy. It, it's it's a, it's a marketing strategy to sell books, and it's not very intelligent because there's a much deeper discussion that can take place about what the nature of, uh, of the end of cycles are are about. Well, you know, and to, to sort of close this thing with Terrence, because uh, uh, we're getting close to the end of the end of the show here, but and I want to ask you a, a couple more things before we go, but the. Uh, as we come full circle, the interesting thing is that the the information on the calendar and all of the stuff that's on the monuments that we've been talking about was apparently inspired through vision quests, etc., that the shamans uh, uh, embarked upon, and they used, as we spoke about, the mushrooms. And interestingly enough, uh, Terence was inspired uh, to do his work on the I Ching through exactly the same mushroom. That's right. And this is just astonishing again to me and and a, and, a, and, a, and a real verification at least in my own mind and it's what just absolutely blows me away about the whole story well if I could just very briefly say that um, evolution or advances I believe comes from a revelation from above it's counterintuitive to the Darwinian model that you know chance mutations and all that kind of stuff right. especially in the cultural realm in the realm of ideas, the advance of our understanding of the cosmos, it comes when we open up to the higher transcendent wisdom that can then come down and animate and expand our existing institutions and, and belief systems. And opening up to that higher dimensional wisdom comes about through the use of these, uh, these uh, sacred plants. Mm. Amazing. All right. Well, let's uh, let's ask you one final one. I have to ask you what, in your own mind, what do you think is coming? What do you think is going to happen? I mean, we're going to find out. We've already we've already uh, certainly achieved that. Well, if it's the end of time, then nothing should happen because if something happens, then time hasn't ended. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the great conundrum at yes. the at the end of history or wow. something. I think that uh, it's it's basically you know. 2012, I think, is a symbol for um, something that human beings have to deal with it every day. Mm. I mean, there are events that happen every hour of every day, and we have to respond to those events with either clamping down in fear or opening up to the to the mystery of something that lies beyond that. Mm. Mm. So I think that it's always about choice, and the choices between uh, fear clamping down and remaining open mm. in a state of openness to the mystery. Amazing. Well said, John. All right, well, look, I think that's a good place to, uh, to call it a night. It has been a fascinating conversation. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thanks for sticking around until 1 o'clock in the morning up there in the plains of Colorado. And we'll, uh, we'll have to do it again sometime as we, uh, as we keep moving forward here. Well, thank you, Mike. I would love that, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. All right, great. Well, John, we'll uh, mention the website one more time here. It's Alignment2012, and you can get there directly, or you can go to my site, and it will be permanently there in the links and in the archives. And speaking of that, this uh, entire program will be up for podcast and uh, download in uh, a very short period of time here. And, John, I'll let you know about that, and if you want, you can put a link up yourself. I will. And... Um, Anyway, okay, great. Thank you so much. One more time, and uh, amazing stuff. I can't wait to see how it all pans out, John. 
Well, thank you. All right, take care of yourself. All right, everybody, John Major Jenkins. Thanks so much, John, for being on the program tonight. All right, this is Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. Next week we have Joanna Harcourt-Smith, my friend and soon-to-be partner. And uh, we're sort of shifting gears now from the eschaton into uh, the psychedelics. I guess it was a good way to finish the show with John because we'll be talking to Joanna Harcourt-Smith, the former Joanna Leary of course, Timothy, uh, Timothy Leary's former wife. So anyway, Joanna and I will be talking about her experiences at Albert Hoffman's 100th Birthday Symposium in Basel, Switzerland, and lots of other things, including the project Future Primitive that her and I are working on together right now through the Marion Institute in uh, uh, Marion, Massachusetts. So, all right, Joanna coming next week. And one more thanks to John Major Jenkins. Check him out on the web through my website or at alignment2012.com. And thanks to Eskmo. My friend, Brendan Angelides, for providing the music for tonight's super cool and wonderful conversation. One more from Eskimo to finish things off. It is appropriately entitled, The Heart. We'll talk to you next week. This is Mike. You've been listening to Radio Orbit.